0: Matthew 24 is going to be our passage as we consider what does the future hold? Now, any parent in the room, and for many of the adults who perhaps are not parents yet, you might remember a time when you're on a family trip and the child or children in the back seat ask a particular question Anytime you're on a family trip, especially if it's a long one, when will we be there? How much longer till we get there? And in that instance, the children are asking a question that, actually adults ask too. We all want to know what the future holds. We want to know when is inflation going to go down? When am I going to pay off my house? When am I going to do this or that? When am I going to start to have a family? When am I going to get married? When is this or that going to happen? And the apostles, the disciples I should say, in our passage they ask a similar question of Jesus. Jesus had just finished denouncing the religious leaders and proclaiming judgment on both the Jewish nation and the religious leaders, and he said it's going to be coming soon. He said within a generation. That's 40 years of time. And the disciples understandably want to know, okay, what, when exactly? And how is this going to look? And Jesus is going to give them an answer. They wanted clarification on the details, just as we might. But the main idea that Jesus is going to begin to express to them. And this is only the beginning of his answer in verses 1-14. to He's going to take the rest of chapter 24 and all of chapter 25 answering their question, although sometimes not quite the way they anticipated. But the main idea here is that the future is in God's hands. He knows. He's in control. And the job of the disciples, in this case that Jesus was speaking to, and the job of anyone who's a follower of Christ today is threefold. To respond with trust in God, to persevere in their faith, and to share the good news of the Gospel. We begin first by seeing a transition. A transition from his denunciation of the religious leaders and now to what's going to be called the Olivet Discourse by many in chapters 24 and 25. It's found in verses 1 and 2. Jesus left the temple. And don't miss the significance there. Remember the King, Jesus, had just... Pronounced all sorts of oracles of woe against the religious leaders. And now he's leaving the temple. And he said, Your temple, this temple, will be left to you desolate. And now the king, the Messiah, the high priest, Jesus himself, is leaving the temple, never to return. He was walking away when the disciples came to him and called his attention to the buildings. Do you see all these things, he asked. I tell you the truth, not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. The temple was an engineering marvel. It's, It's beautiful from all descriptions that we have. In fact, archaeologists and historians, engineers, are still extremely perplexed as to how some of the foundation stones that are still remaining under the temple mount got to be there in the first place. They're so massive, even modern machinery cannot move them. But we know where they came from, and they came from a great distance away. How did they get there? How did this massive structure get built? We're told by Josephus, who was an early Jewish historian, of this glorious description of the temple. We see the the temple mount here. Here's an artist's recreation of the temple itself. Notice at the top, we're told that at the top of the temple... It had been plated in gold. We're not sure how extensive that plating was. But it was said that when the sun would rise, and of course we're talking about the Middle East here, so the sun would rise and be quite intense at times. When it would rise, it would glint off that gold. And it must have been a spectacular sight. And not only that, but the temple was in the middle of Jerusalem on the raised mountainous area you might say or the hill and it was also bolstered up by the temple mount itself and so it was clearly the central point the highest point and you could see it as you traveled to Jerusalem from a great distance well what Jesus does is he goes across the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives which is just kind of a cross you could still see the temple mount from there quite easily and he goes over and he sits down and his disciples ask him these questions on the way about the temple. Don't you see Jesus? Wow, what amazing temple. But Jesus is not impressed. The building may be externally beautiful, and it was certainly something that the Jewish people were proud of. And from a human perspective, we understand that. It was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. In fact, later on, when Titus, the the Roman general, gave the order to destroy it, he he kind of went back and forth. I don't actually want to destroy this building. But in the end, he said, yes, do it. But it was so beautiful and it was so central. Even a Roman general was at great pains to not destroy it if he could, but he had to. But Jesus is not impressed. Why? Because there's no spiritual life there. The purpose of God's temple on earth in Jerusalem was never To be the most beautiful building. Yes, it was supposed to be beautiful, but that was only for the purpose of reflecting or pointing people to the one true God. But once God's spirit had left, once Jesus the Messiah, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, who had come to his people and his people had rejected him, once he left the Temple Mount, there is nothing there that is worthwhile. And so he says it's going to be destroyed. Jesus said, moreover, that the destruction wouldn't just be partial, it'd be extensive, it would be complete. And that destruction happened against all human odds because the Jewish people at the time, the Romans at the time, would have said, you know, why? What what are you saying? How in the world could this be destroyed? It was only recently finished. It took decades to finish. Who would destroy it? But against all human odds, it was destroyed in 70 AD. Utterly, completely, not a single stone of the temple was left on top of each other by the order of Titus, the Roman general because it so clearly and specifically was fulfilled by Jesus, because he gave this pronouncement, it was clearly fulfilled, because of that, skeptics and some cynical scholars actually put forward the suggestion that Matthew, the gospel writer, either made this up, or that Jesus, um, if if he or his followers said anything like this, it wasn't until much later somehow, or his followers made this up later, and Matthew only wrote this down, After the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD So it it wasn't really Jesus predicting something that happened It was sort of anachronistic And Matthew's just writing this down after the fact To make Jesus look better But that actually goes against all the evidence That's a fabrication based on blind prejudice The, The prejudice, the assumption That Jesus couldn't do something supernatural Like predict the future But of course if Jesus is who he claimed to be There's no problem, is there? he's God in human form he can more than easily tell us something about the future if he so desires and he does so here we shouldn't be surprised by that but this does beg an an important question and this is a vital question for all of the Olivet Discourse chapters 24 and 25 what is the connection between the destruction of the temple that Jesus is talking about and answering the, the disciples questions about what's the connection between that and the future judgment when Jesus returns again. Now, in order to properly understand all that Jesus is saying here, there's a a theological category. It goes by different names. Sometimes it's called telescoping or double fulfillment. The idea and the illustration that's most often used is of uh, someone. Think of an explorer. And they're using a set of binoculars. They're looking ahead, and they see a mountain range in the distance. And in that mountain range, dead ahead, they see what they think is one mountain peak. But as they get closer, only upon closer inspection, as they get nearer to that object, they realize, no, that's not one mountain peak, that's two, one behind the other, separated by a significant valley. And that's, in essence, what telescoping is in a theological framework. The idea is that there is an immediate or a, a fulfillment of the prophecy that happens in the near future, but then that points beyond itself to the ultimate fulfillment in the distant future. Or to put it with literary terminology, you have a a foreshadowing and then the ultimate realization at the end. And Jesus is predicting, prophesying things about the future, but it's not all about 70 A.D. Nor is it all about the end of the age or the end of the world when Jesus himself returns. It's a bit of both. And oftentimes, several things that that happened and that Jesus predicts about the destruction of Jerusalem... They are literally fulfilled, as he prescribes, but they point beyond themselves to an even greater fulfillment because, of course, the type of judgment that Jesus is going to be speaking of is is widespread. It's global at times. But, of course, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple was, was very locally oriented. But that local destruction, that local judgment, points beyond itself to the ultimate judgment. And this is a helpful category for us, and it's going to set us up to understand More of what Jesus is saying. By the way, a great discipline in the coming weeks is I would encourage you to read through chapters 24 and 25 and look for this element. Look for this element. What does Jesus say that seems to be fulfilled in 70 AD or partially fulfilled, but also point beyond itself to something even greater? And it's a great lens through which we can look to understand this passage. This is the fifth and final discourse in the Gospel of Matthew, the, the final major teaching section that Jesus gives. And it's also one of the most controversial. It's been one of the most um, misunderstood at times. But Jesus gives us wonderful truth, and so it, it will, we will be well served to spend the time, energy, and effort it takes to understand what he's saying here. The disciples ask about the future in verses 3 to 8. They ask a two-part question. Verse 3, Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives. The disciples come to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what would be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And before Jesus answers, let's consider something for a moment. What are the two questions or the two parts to their questions? When is this going to happen? That's the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And what are the signs for the end of the age? But what do they mean by the end of the age. They could mean the end of the world, and that's how some people understand it, or they could mean the end of the Jewish age. What we mean by that is the idea that if the the, um, the temple and the Jerusalem are destroyed, certainly so much of the Jewish religious system is centered around the temple. So without the temple, you can't do the sacrifices. You can't do a great many of the commands in the Old Testament. So certainly that would... Bring to an end an element of the Jewish history or the Jewish era, you might say, in the land of Israel. And certainly that has been the case historically. Since that time in 70 AD, there has not been a temple on that Temple Mount for the Jewish people to sacrifice. So it certainly did significantly change the Jewish system. Now, they clearly would have understood the destruction of the Temple in Jerusalem would cause the end of the Jewish age, but do they also think that it's going to happen at the same time as the sort of end of the world and when Jesus returns again and the final judgment and sort of the cosmic end to all things as we know it? Well, we're uncertain how the disciples understood this, but what we are going to find is that Jesus seems to distinguish between these two things. The end of the Jewish age with the destruction of the temple foreshadows the end of The ages, we might say, or the end of the world when the final judgment comes. Jesus answers them in verses 4 to 6, first of all, with a warning not to be deceived. Jesus said, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Christ and will deceive many. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is yet to come. Many, he says, will try to deceive you. Some will even claim to be the Messiah. Don't listen to them. They're false. He also tells of terrible natural disasters. He already started talking about wars, but verses 7 and 8, nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and all these are the beginning of birth pains, he says. Just as a woman, when she begins to go into labor, she may have some false labor or the contractions are significantly far apart. He says, all of these things are just the beginning. They're not the actual labor itself. They're, They're just the start. It's not quite the end. So they're going to be terrible natural and human disasters. The human disasters will be wars and political intrigue. Pardon me. I know all of us right now seem to have runny noses and are getting coughs and things. Can't shake this one, that's all right. It actually goes to our point, we live in a fallen world where we get sick. Wars and political intrigue, which are caused by humans, but we also have, he says, famine and earthquakes, and some translations have pestilences or or plagues. Um, The reason that some have it and some don't is because some of our early manuscripts mention that one, some don't, and we're a little uncertain if it's in the original. But whether it is or not, certainly Jesus is talking about natural disasters and and pestilences or plagues go right along with famine and earthquakes. So human-caused disasters, natural disasters, these are all going to happen, Jesus says, but that's not the end. That's not actually the sign you're looking for. Don't be deceived. Don't be thrown off. There are many such occurrences today and many such deceptions today and throughout church history, but Jesus clearly says it's not the end. And Christian, may I just warn you, beware. Be, beware of those who want to take every major modern occurrence or challenge or issue, political intrigue or war or famine or natural disaster. There, there are many, maybe sometimes even well-intentioned, perhaps calling themselves Christians, who want to take every modern major event and say, oh, this is a sign of the times. This is a sign that Jesus is just about to return. That's not what Jesus says. He says, no, the end is not yet. Those are not the signs. Those are going to happen all the way up until the end. And if we read in history, we find that all those things have happened throughout time. But yet we still see instances, and I'll, I'll just give you four of them. But we see instances in history where people make this mistake. They're not listening to what Jesus is saying clearly enough. And by default, then they're deceiving other people, or at least seeking to deceive other people, whether their motivation is good or not. During World War I, you saw well-intentioned individuals saying, See, this is a time, this is the sign of the time that Jesus is about to return. They said the same thing during World War II. They said the same thing during the Spanish flu or influenza in the 1920s. See, this is this is a major sign of the times. Jesus is going to return. I even heard some of them saying it during COVID. No. Listen to Jesus' words. The end is not yet, he says. This is going to happen through history and all the way up to and including the end. These are just the start of trouble, which, by the way, that's a startling phrase, isn't it? Those are bad enough. If those are only the things that we're going to constantly have with us, and the end is going to be much worse, God, save us from the end. Save us from that ultimate judgment. These events of wars and pestilence and plague they don't help us predict the Lord's coming, for they happen throughout history. But it does remind us that problems characterize our age, and that should cause two outcomes. One, the reminder that we live in a severely broken world, a world where human beings are crippled by sin, which is why we end up getting into wars, why political intrigues and power plays that harm other people. But also our world is cursed by sin, and it groans, the Bible says, in travail and pain. And that's why we have these natural disasters. We live in a truly broken world, but at the same time, there's a second reminder. It should cause us, especially if we're a Christian, to long for God's return. To to long for that time where he will put everything right. The purpose of these details is not so that we can build up timelines or write books or make charts or get predictions and, and make all the details work out. And by the way, some of us are more tempted to that than others. Any, any of you who are perhaps a little bit more detail-oriented, a little more analytical, it's, it's a real temptation when it comes to passages like this or similar passages like the book of Revelation, and we want to know how is it all going to work out, when is it going to work out, but that is not the point. And if we, if we start getting down that track, we actually miss the point. We get sidetracked away from the purpose of Jesus telling us this. He told us this. He told his followers this so that we know how to live now in light of what's coming. And that's vitally important. So Jesus does not stop at describing the terrible outcomes on the global scale, but he also explains what will happen to the disciples, more personally, you might say. He talks about the general, but now he's going to talk about the specific for the disciples. How will Christ's followers react? What will happen to them in the coming centuries? And in essence, Jesus is answering this question, what does all this mean for me as a disciple of Jesus? Jesus describes the future for his disciple, Verse 9, it's just like the natural disasters and everything else he mentioned, it's not pretty. Verse 9, then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. You'll be hated by all the nations because of me. Jesus says two things are going to come for my followers initially, persecution and possibly even martyrdom. Why? Both of them for the sake of my name, he tells them. Verse 10, all, uh, at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. He says this persecution and martyrdom is going to come, and although we don't have extensive evidence for all of this, we have extensive evidence that several of the disciples, those individuals listening to Jesus at that moment, did ultimately suffer persecution and martyrdom. Church tradition tells us that 10 out of the 11 remaining after Judas betrayed Jesus, 10 out of the 11 remaining died a martyr's death and they attempted to kill John, the last remaining one as well. But God saved him so that he could write the book of Revelation and other things that God had for him. But they experienced this firsthand. By the way, it's helpful to understand what persecution is. There's two elements to persecution. One is rejection. Societal rejection, familial rejection. Being rejected because you follow Jesus. And I know some of you have experienced that in your family. Partially they've cut you off or completely they've cut you off. You you can't have the same relationship with them. and, And Jesus told us that would happen. It's a terrible tragedy in one sense that people would respond in that way, but Jesus said they treated me that way, they'll treat my followers that way. Rejection but also physical harm, and that can be at very different levels, all the way up to and including martyrdom. Jesus said, all this will be for the sake of my name, but he goes on and says four other things will happen as well. There will be desertion. Many who claim to be Christians will be led away into sin. In the early church, persecution and natural disasters, all sorts of challenges, caused, or I shouldn't say caused, contributed to this happening. People deserted the faith. People who claim to be Christians, they then leave the church. But this was not unique to Jesus' day or to the early church. It's happened throughout church history. Anytime a challenging situation happens, and in fact, even recently with COVID, we've seen individuals in our church and other churches that I've spoken with use the current situation as an excuse to walk away from Jesus. Challenging circumstances is, have always caused a sifting of true and false followers of Jesus. And, that would, and that's exactly what Jesus tells us here. He tells us it elsewhere as well. But there's also going to be betrayal. Those who call themselves Christians, or did call themselves Christians, will betray other Christians. Deception. There will be false prophets who will appear. They'll deceive many, he says. And there's a wonderful promise of Jesus. It, it comes out as almost a a horrible expression if you don't understand that there's a promise link to it. He says, these false prophets will try to deceive even the elect, even the chosen, even the true followers of God. They will try to even deceive them. But, and I love the promises of Christ, we must hold on to them, he says, in another situation to someone like Peter, Satan has desired to have you but I have prayed for you. Jesus prays for his followers. He intercedes for his followers before the Father. He causes us to continue on. We'll see that in just a moment in verses 13 and 14. But he says a fourth thing will happen. Not only will we see desertion and betrayal and deception, we'll also see apathy. Christian love will struggle due to sin. But he gives a glorious, reassuring promise because if we just had verses 1 to 12, oh, that would be pretty bleak. But he gives us verses 13 and 14 as well. The follower of God who perseveres to the end will be saved. He says in verse 13, because of the increase of, or pardon me, that's verse 12, verse 13, but he who stands firm to the end, who perseveres to the end, some translations say, who continues, they will be saved. And verse 14, and this gospel of the kingdom will first be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations or all the ethnicities. And then the end will come. So he he gives a a two-part promise, we might say. The follower of God who perseveres to the end will be saved. Do you hear that? If you follow Christ, if he has saved you and you follow and you stay true to the end, you will be saved. The doctrine of Christian perseverance is a glorious doctrine, one that we would do well to consider and meditate on. It means those who are truly saved will inevitably persevere to the end. They will make it, not because of themselves, because we remember that when we become a Christian, that's not our doing, it's God's doing. So too, the perseverance and keeping us, God keeping us all the way until we die and go to be with him, that too is God's work. But we're told two things in the scriptures, as is often the case, we're both commanded persevere to the end, and we're told God will cause his true followers to persevere to the end. What Jesus told us to expect here is that God will help his people to continue on. True followers, he will help to remain faithful. But that means we also need to be retrospect. We're told by Peter in another epistle, he says that we must consider our claim to faith, our claim of Christianity. We must test it. Are we truly in the faith? Are we truly persevering? I remember hearing from a a Christian pastor and church leader after about three decades at a church. And he's still in ministry today, but he's not pastoring that same church. But someone asked him in a QA, they said, um, Pastor, what are you most concerned about? In your ministry that God has given you now, you're you're past the age of retirement, but you're still doing ministry. what are you most concerned about? And he said the one thing that I, I don't think he said the word worry, but that was the idea. The one thing I'm most concerned about is I want to make sure I persevere to the end. I don't want to falter at the end. That was a wise person. He wasn't willing to just sit back and say, well, I've reached retirement age. I'm just going to sit here and trust that in the last 40 years, that's all that there is, and now I can coast. There is no coasting in the Christian life. It's constant persevering to the end. It's running the race, as Hebrews 12 says. It's what Paul says, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Are you persevering, Christian? Are you pressing forward? But also, he says, the gospel will be preached in the whole world. And this is one of those uh, elements where we see the initial fulfillment or beginning fulfillment, but also pointing beyond itself. Because Paul tells us in Colossians 1, verses 5 and 6, that the gospel had been preached in the whole world, that is the known Roman world at the time. Now he made that claim in the epistle in about 62 AD, or about eight years before the temple was destroyed. And what that tells us is in one sense, this prediction was fulfilled before the destruction of Jerusalem. But in another sense, we're going to find that actually it points beyond itself to something that will be happening throughout church history all the way up until the end. This doesn't mean that all the nations will be converted. and the word for nation, many do reject Jesus. But what it does mean is that the universal proclamation of the gospel will continue all the way up to the very end. And all of these signs happened or began to happen before 70 A.D., but they also then point beyond themselves to something that will happen more ultimately, we might say, in the future. Jesus has much more to tell his followers, and what he says clearly goes beyond the destruction of the Jerusalem in 70 A.D. He's speaking these words in 32, 33 A.D. So within 37, 38 years, within that 40-year generation that he proclaimed, it happened, just as he said, but it also points beyond itself just as surely to something else that will happen in the future. And the part of the reason he gives us This glorious set of truths and promises and predictions about the future is is not to wet our appetite for details or to try to figure out how the future is going to work. But rather, it's so that we can know, we can trust him in this moment because his words have always come true in the past. They will always just as surely come true in the future with what he said about the future judgment. And so we need to live in light of that reality. If you knew a war or a political situation was going to happen where, within two years time, all Australian money was going to be utterly worthless and we would be using a different currency. You would be a fool to go to the bank tomorrow and pull out as much Australian cash as possible. Why would you do that? It's going to be worthless in a short period of time. You would act in light of what you knew was going to happen, you would act now in line with that. You would only have enough cash on hand to get you through until that time happened. And then you would try to perhaps buy other things that you thought might be worthwhile with whatever that transition that was going to happen would occur. We can already begin to draw some helpful conclusions about what Jesus says here, and that's the point. How do we live now in light of what is coming, in light of what has happened? The future is in God's hand, and our responsibility is to trust him to persevere until the end by God's grace, and to share the good news of the gospel. Four applications here. First of all, the end of the old era, that is the old Jewish era, was brought to a definitive close just as Jesus predicted. So too the end of the age, that is the end of the world, we might say, or his second coming is going to happen just as he said as well. His word is true. He's always completed and fulfilled everything that he spoke of in the past, and so we can trust him for everything he spoke about for the future. Secondly, don't listen to false teachers who seek to lead you astray. Church history has been full of these individuals, and we have far too many of them today. Christian bookshops are full of their books. The Internet is full of their teaching. Beware. Jesus warns us so that we won't be deceived. Beware the pitfalls. The wise follower of God will take notice and heed God's warning. And thirdly and fourthly, these go together. The purpose of these truths that Jesus gives is not for sensational books or making ridiculous predictions or trying to figure out exact timelines and all those things. What is the purpose? The purpose is for God's people to trust God. That he has everything well in hand. He will make everything right. And to understand that there is a future judgment coming. So, These truths inform how we should live now. And that that works in two different ways depending on who you are and where you are at spiritually at this moment. If you are not a Christian, then the lesson for you is become a Christian today. Because just as what Jesus clearly predicted in the past came about, exactly as he predicted, to the letter, just as that horrible judgment on Jerusalem, and it was devastating. Historians tell us that when it happened, interestingly, When it happened, there were almost no Christians left in the city. Because as we'll find, Jesus warned the Christians, when you see the armies approaching, when you see this coming, get out. I've already warned you what will happen. And the Christians did get out. They tried to warn their fellow Jewish people too, but the Jewish people, many of them would not leave. And so almost a million Jewish people were slaughtered in Jerusalem. Despite Jesus' warning. He gave them 40 years of warning, and they still wouldn't listen. And the Romans destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple. That judgment was severe, but it, it, it pales in comparison to the judgment that is coming. God must judge sin. He must judge our actions, and he will. And so if you're not a Christian, the lesson to you is the future judgment is coming. It's just as certain as the judgment that Jesus pronounced back then that has already happened. And so save yourself from that coming terrible day of judgment By responding to Jesus now. Because that's the only hope. And for the Christian, you and I must, by God's grace, we can't do it in our own strength, we must persevere in our faith. And as we keep pressing on in our faith, don't get weary in well-doing, we're told. Keep pushing. Don't think of it as a sprint. It's a marathon. Keep going. And as we do so, let's spread the good news of Jesus to a lost and dying world. That is the need of the hour. It's not more summits, it's not more political actions, it's not new political leaders, it's not new governmental ideas, it's not new economic theories, it's, it's not new educational reforms. None of those things will save the world. None of those things can save a single human being, much less the world. The need of the hour is for Christians to be distinctly like Christ and share the good news of Christ with a lost and dying world because it, there is a judgment coming. We must be prepared. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is always true. It's also sobering in a passage like this. May we be ready for the coming day of judgment. I pray for anyone here who does not yet know you or someone who thinks they know you but maybe maybe they're realizing They're one of those false converts that you talked about in this passage. If they don't yet know you, convict them of their sin, help them to trust you so they don't have to face you on judgment day and pay for their sins. Rather, help them to repent and turn to Jesus knowing that he paid the sacrifice for their sin so they don't have to face the judgment of God. And for us as Christians, my brothers and sisters in Christ, I ask that you would help us to be sober-minded Live now in light of eternity. Persevere by your Spirit's power. Live like Christ and share the good news of Christ with the world that needs it so desperately. We ask this in the name of Christ, our Lord, Savior, and Messiah. Amen.